You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is October 27th, 2022 at 7.35 uh, p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, we've been talking about a view mainly in relationship to the attachment perspective. And uh, now what I wanted to do was to shift a little bit and talk about conditioning, but also from an attachment point of view. Um, one of the things about uh, traditional Buddhist practices, we're always talking about conditioning and uh, and how conditioning affects the way that you uh, create the perception of self and world. Uh, and that a, a lot of the practices is about working through conditioning in order to see clearly uh, the nature of things. And we would characterize enlightenment as seeing clearly the nature of the human condition. Uh, is that so far agreeable? I haven't wandered too far off. <laughs> um, but it tends to be rather amorphous, this, this idea of what conditioning is. Uh, and uh, so I like to talk about it in a more specific way. The... Um, <clears throat> We're talking often about ultimate reality, what it is that we can know about the experience that we have, and then how we form that into conceptual reality, and how uh, we exist uh, in this human form, uh, and are, in some sense, limited to the capacity of the human form uh, to sense things, but also the capacity of the human form to be able to make sense out of the things or, or uh, cognize the things that we uh, uh, can sense. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, we, we focus on quite a bit in the West, which is probably less so in the East, is the Four Noble Truths, the truth of uh, the nature of the human conditioning, that the desire to have that be different is the, the cause of suffering. There is a way out of uh, that suffering of uh, craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. Uh, and that, that path out is the Eightfold Path. But to see clearly the nature of, of what this uh, life is, uh, that there is not a self that's permanent, that's ongoing, that's locatable, that's continuous. Um, and that we're in a body that will grow old, get sick and die, that everything is impermanent, that nothing lasts, that you can't really rely on anything. Uh, which is the Theravada sort of view. If you added to that the uh, more of a Tibetan view, then you'd also uh, add to that a sense of the sacredness of all of this, the, the one uh, precious life that we have now. Uh, reincarnation and um, 
karma are also central themes that that we tend to talk about the nature of karma that each and in each intention and action that you take creates a karmic thread uh, if there's uh, any kind of clinging to what happens and that these uh, karmic uh, threads come into fruition over many lifetimes and that if you become enlightened and work through these uh, karmic uh, attachments you can become free of them and not reincarnate in uh, Theravada Buddhism uh, really the idea is to get out of here as fast as possible you know enlightenment and out uh, and in the uh, Mahayana Zen and uh, Tibetan traditions you there's the idea that you take the the bodhisattva vow where you you commit to being reincarnated until all beings can be liberated well sentient beings i should say and in in the traditional buddhist understanding of that that means humans only or no one else is sentient but in the west of course we have science which would indicate to us that sentience is widely spread in species uh, and how do you reconcile that that, that it is only the, the humans that uh, are uh, liberated the way that i like to talk about conditioning is uh like a database so this sort of this modern uh view of a uh a database, a, a computer model, a, a technology a metaphor, that you have the capacity to sense things, uh, touching, uh, touch the tactile sense of the world, the visual sense of the world, the auditory sense of the world, the, the, the smell of the world, the taste of the world, and that you gather this information and you uh, compare the patterns of that as you sense them uh, to a, a database of previously experienced things and if there's a close enough match then that thread of meaning that th uh, that thread of memory then attaches to the experience of the present moment and you form um, the experience of the present moment now <clears throat> this is a remarkably quick thing that happens uh, one example we might use of that is that I'm speaking English and you're listening to me, uh, the sound of English, my English, and you're interpreting those sound vibrations and assigning meaning to them. If you have uh, heard the words that I used before and assigned meaning to them, then you're assembling sentences and paragraphs and uh, assigning an understanding of what I'm saying, but you're using your definitions and your experience of what those words mean, not mine. And so you could easily form a perception of what I'm saying that's different than what I might intend to say. And that if you weren't conditioned to understand the vib vibratory sound of spoken English, then you would be hearing sounds, but you wouldn't be able to assign meaning to them because you're not conditioned to to sign meaning it's i i speak english only and so when somebody speaks to me in an, an another language i hear the sound of it and sometimes i can make out 
words, but I don't really have much in the way of assigned meaning. It isn't, of course, the only way that we communicate. There's a whole metatext that happens, which is uh, body language. Uh, we can sometimes understand the body language of somebody, even if we can't understand their words. But we're offering, often, often layering those kinds of meanings. It's one of the reasons why texting is so emotionally fraught for a lot of people, because it's absent of the the metatext or the subtext of the presentation of experience. It's absent the empathetic connection, which you can also make sometimes with people. So that there's a felt sense of them in addition to the presentation of their, their uh, face and body language, in addition to the words, which really allows a, a different sense. And then actually, if you're close enough to somebody and you, you can touch them in addition to that, there's a tactile sense of the experience of being with them, all of which uh, can convey meaning that is not simply language. And then, of course, all of those can be defined by the experiences that we actually have. Um, I know uh, an example of that would be uh, I had a friend, and in his family system, uh, his mother or father would say, oh, uh, th that's terrible, and that, that gesture would be followed by soothing. But in my family system, my father would say, oh, and it would be followed by uh, uh, sadistic abuse. So there was the, the meanings are quite different, and... Uh, one of the issues that we had in the relationship is that he would say, oh, as a gesture of uh, intending to be soothing, and I would just brace, waiting. Uh, and uh, he would feel rejected by that. Christian? George, do you feel like the Buddhist path offers reconditioning around these kinds of really deep, really, like, really old like conditions, or...? Well, I, I certainly think that the, what I'm describing is, is insight into the nature of those things, right? That uh, we have a database, uh, and when you understand that you actually uh, take in uh, the experiences that you have, uh, and that you define them in the way that you do, and that you want to be in intimate communication with someone else, that requires that you begin to learn their definition of things so that actually you can communicate to them in a way that that means something to me. If you want to offer me soothing, awe should not be the first thing that you say because I don't hear that. I don't hear soothing when you say that. And so a part of the training, um, um, if you take the phrase uh, from the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside, what you understand is that uh, you want to be able to track your own reactions to the experience that you're having and to understand that they're yours. You want to be able to track the experience that somebody else is having, understand that they're having those experiences, you also want to understand that your reaction to things when they experience that reaction has an effect on them and the way that they react both to the present moment and to your reaction 
how you react to, and so there's an engagement. That would be uh, another way to describe that would be active mentalizing. That you're able to understand that you are uh, cherry picking the environment and selecting what's interesting to you. And the person that you're with is cherry picking the environment for things that are meaningful to them. And you're likely picking different elements from whatever is happening because you have different uh, understandings of what's meaningful. And then you're assembling conceptual reality from that selection that you've made. Then the person that you're with is uh, creating conceptual reality from the selection that they've made so that you may be actually experiencing quite different things in the same environment. And that you come from this place of, this is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? Rather than, this is my understanding of what's happening and you're having the same experience. And so I can assign meaning to that. It's a non-mentalizing stance. Uh, so uh, in a non-Buddhist frame, what, what we would be really saying is that you understand the nature of the human condition is that. Not that there's a universal experience that you can tap into, and that everybody has the same experience of that. Is that making sense? So in some sense, what you do is learn the people that you're in relationship to and understand what what... Uh, what the meaning, uh, what their meanings are. And then with uh, uh, a collaborative relationship, of course, they're doing the same thing for you. So that then when you communicate to each other, you're sensitive to the definitions that they use so that you can translate uh, into a different language if you need to what you need to convey to them. So you understand in your definitions what it is you want to convey in terms of meaning and translate it, that into the definitions that they use so that you're actually communicating the thing that you want to mean. Is that making sense? And learning them, uh, learning them well enough that you can do it fast enough, right? So when you get, uh, when you have a, a moment of stress and your cognitive mind uh, collapses that you you can still from that place of uh, emotional dysregulation communicate in a way that's skillful that, does that make sense and one of the things that uh conditioning does of course is create these um, meanings for things but also these expectations for things so you have the capacity to sense something you have an object that can be sensed by that capacity right you can't well <laughs> i was going to say you can't hear light uh, but uh i was um uh, at a performance of uh Mozart's 39th symphony uh, last week. And one of the people I was with uh, is synesthetic, do you know what I mean? Uh, when, when they hear sound, it forms color in the mind. 
And so they were, they closed their eyes and at a certain point they grabbed my arm because the color uh, experience that they were having was so intense. Uh, I don't have that. So I, I was just uh, really in a moment of envy for what that must be like to be able to hear color. Um, <clears throat> Christian. Uh, to, to what you were just saying about the sort of personal conditioning I have a friend who has synesthesia and I ask her about that kind of stuff. And everyone who has synesthesia has different color associations. Right. And none of the none of the like classical composers could agree on what keys were what colors. <laughs> if they had synesthesia, which right. Exactly. That's it. Uh, I think that a, a real understanding of that is that it, it enriches everything, that everybody's point of view is different. It's like different facets looking at the jewel of the Dharma. There's so many ways of seeing things that, that if you can get somebody to trust you enough to tell you what's going on, that's awesome, right? And if you, uh, if you can uh, get somebody to be willing to listen to you as you as you describe that experience that's also wonderful uh, it's enriching and, and and creates depth in the experience um, beyond what you alone can figure out there's a wonderful poem uh, you've probably heard me read it because i like it so much the shinder poem uh, <clears throat> about um dying and really it is uh, in a in a wild paraphrase uh, what's so wonderful about uh, relationships is, is particularly intimate relationships is getting out into the far end edge of what you can know about somebody else what they can know about you and how uh, that makes you feel seen in a way and that that sense of somebody really seeing you and and delighting in, in who you are is is so meaningful um, one of the things, of course, as I say that, that, uh, that it, uh, my thought around that is we, we, we come into this world. Um, my friend, uh, Laura Chiba just came by with uh, Maeve, the, their baby who's four months old. She's uh, a little sparkling redhead with blue eyes. And you see this little, uh, no self, right? <laughs> This little being, so enchanting and engaging and uh, delightful, uh, and uh, um, and yet not everybody has that experience as a baby that the, that their caregivers think that they're enchanting and delightful. Not everybody has caregivers who respond to the, that uh, natural innocence. And the way that we really understand that beingness that we have is uh, as it's reflected back to us uh, in the faces of the caregivers that we have. Uh, they, uh, we, we are, are simply these this vibrating. And if you've ever been around a new, newborn, you can see them vibrating, literally. You can see the waves of emotion washing over them and you can see the excitement and the fearfulness and all the rest of the things in a completely unmasked uh, open way because they have no sense of needing to do any of that 
and um, <clears throat> and then uh, each time they make that presentation, they're looking for the reassurance. Uh, they're looking for that reflection of what what that experience is and what that experience means. This is the the the, the source of that early conditioning. And what we tend to do in that process of being conditioned uh, by our caregivers is to assign meaning to those impulses based on the reflection back to us, which is not necessarily uh, um, who we are or what we're doing, if that makes sense. And then that begins to build up. if we're really fussy, if we're really uh, uncomfortable, if we we cry a lot because we're colicky and our our caregivers constantly reflect back to us that we're delightful and that they're happy to take care of us and happy to be there with us, then even those difficult states we assign a sense of connectedness to. We we, we assign a sense of acceptance uh, to them. Whereas if it overwhelms the caregiver, then we we can assign a sense of fearfulness to expressing those kinds of things. And it it happens so early uh, that we learn who we are as a reflection of our caregiver's uh, interest in us and the way that we present ourselves. This is uh, the attachment frame. And so if they do a good enough job, which is a fairly low bar, which is about 30% of the time or better, then we, we develop a sense of ourselves as being capable, a sense of ourselves as being delightful, a sense of ourselves as being desirable. And if we don't have that, we develop different maps of ourselves. Uh, and really, the, the, the thing about this is that that is affecting our expectation of how uh, uh, the world will respond to us. In Buddhism, of course, the world means other people, that expectation of how people will respond to us, so that when we create the experience of conceptual reality, we are also creating as part of that an expectation of what will happen. And so one of the things uh, that uh, is important to begin to do in this uh, practice of meditation is to really watch all of these things happen so that you can understand the the way that you form the sense of self and world, the the way that you, uh, what you expect from yourself and also what you expect uh, from the world, because uh, it it also informs uh, the actions that you take or that you don't take, uh, the expressions that you make or that you don't make. Um, One of the metaphors that I like quite a bit is this idea that uh, we all have a seat at the table and there's, uh, uh, I grew up in a rather formal uh, Protestant household with, with of rules and manners and place cards by the seat where you're supposed to sit down. Um, do you have the expectation that you're, you have a seat at the table and that you should look for your place card and just sit down? Or do you hope that some crumbs fall off the table so that you don't starve to death? Uh, the range of expectations that we have.
So you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact, consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's processed for uh, urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter if you get to it? Uh, is, uh, if it's pleasant, is there time to experience something that's pleasant? And then uh, those uh, events as they're ordered on that basis are compared to the perceptual database and if there's an entry that's close enough then that whole string of meaning of the whole lifetime is associated with the experience of the present moment and here we go again into this uh, understanding of things we need to be careful at that moment of the creation of conceptual reality not to slip out of the present moment into the memory and then limit ourselves to just what happened. One of the reasons that we get into these samsaric loops is because we slip out of awareness of the present moment into the memory, and then the only uh, outcomes that we can see are the things that have already happened. Uh, we don't see in the moment in front of us all of the possibilities, all of the choices that we, are, we could make if we could recognize that they are there. But then uh, we make an intention, this is one of those ideas that I, I think really resonates with the way that it is, is we make an intention for an action with an expectation of what will happen. But the, the, the nature of the, this life that we're in, the nature of the world that we're in, is so complex that we can't predict accurately what the outcome is going to be. So we make an intention for that. We take the action and then uh, the, the process of the world forming around that action happens. Uh, and sometimes it goes in, in a way that uh, you can expect, and sometimes it doesn't go in that way. And so you have to take in the outcome of the decision you make so that you can reformulate a, a new response to it. And again, it, the process repeats, and in that moment, uh, that uh, conditioned experience of the present moment opening, what opens with it is all of the choices that you could make in the next moment. Uh, and if you're seeing clearly and you're free, uh, you can choose any of them. But if you're conditioned and slip out of the awareness of the present moment and you're stuck in the habit of, of the, the way that you expect the world to be, uh, you you limit the, the choices that you can make to just the things that have already happened. Then this works pretty well with uh, conditioned things where the experience of the present moment is like other things that you've experienced. But if it's novel, if it's a novel experience, uh, then, it, then the imagination is meant to kick in and try to make sense out of the experience and then formulate a, a response which takes longer. So sometimes there's a delay in that processing. If we actually add into this uh, some biology about how this happens, uh, the conscious mind, the thing that we know is ourselves, the, the, that experience of I'm experiencing this, the I amness, 
runs about a half a second behind what's actually happening. So we're getting a report of what's happening. We're not actually in the experience of what's happening. The science on this is pretty good. Um, we tend to smooth over the absence. So that when we're in the spontaneous side, that automatic side of things, and we're just doing in response, we tend to be more in line with what's actually happening. Uh, and when we have to flip into the monitoring of the controlled side of things, we're, we're running behind. Is that making sense? You cannot play tennis from the sense of self because the ball has already gone by a half a second ago. Have you ever tried to play uh, a game or a sport or something uh, or do something where actually you have to be really in uh, the zone to play well and that when you're not in that space, it, uh, it doesn't happen very well. And that's because of this uh, time differential. You can't really drive from the self. Uh, you have to flow into the zone of it to drive smoothly into it. Do you notice that you can do that? And you're just sort of driving along if you can drive a car and then the self is sort of monitoring it. Maybe the, maybe it's thinking, oh, I should change the radio, but the whole rest of the body is driving the car. So we have that uh, when, the, if you can get into an ease of understanding that the self is not actually the thing that's doing it, the self is actually the audience watching what you're actually doing. The Joanness is doing it, and Joan is watching, you know. The Christianness is doing it, and Christian is watching. The Peterness is doing it, and uh, Peter is watching what's happening, so that you can jump in if you need to and save the day uh, if you're mindful and paying attention. But all of the rest of it is pretty automatic, pretty unconscious. And that actually is a good thing. I'm not complaining about that in any way. I'm just trying to describe to you the way that it is. And that one of the reasons why meditation is so useful for, for changing the early conditioning is because you're actually, uh, the, the, the place that the meditation affects is that unconscious automatic place. So that you do the, the formal practices uh, and then you watch to see whether or not it's having an effect rather than uh, whether you enjoy the practice or not. One of the things about, uh, particularly in the beginning of practice, uh, before you really have a sense that it's having these uh, effects is uh, that it's not that fun for the, the audience part to watch you work uh, in the unconscious automatic place that meditation affects. You go, well, that was a great sit because I was relaxed and felt comfortable and the breeze was nice. Or that was a terrible sit because I felt irritation in the body. It was too hot and there was a mosquito. Um, but either one of those doesn't uh, really register in terms of the effect of what meditation can do because what you're affecting in meditation is not conscious. So you do your practice and you do it in, a, in an organized and skillful way so that you can direct yourself more into the understanding of the nature of the human condition 
which is uh, that you live in this body, which is going to grow old, it's going to get sick, it's going to die. Everyone you know and everything you have will be lost because everything is impermanent. And um, sometimes you get what you want, but it's impermanent, so you lose it. Sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. There's a constant, subtle irritation that it's not really the way that you would like it if you were in charge, which means, hey, it's not how you want it and you're not in charge. And somehow you have to come into a place of understanding that this is actually it. Joan? Could you talk a little bit more about what you just said, that the effects of meditation are unconscious? I can. Um, uh, one of the things um, that we use in the attachment side of things is the ideal parent figure protocol. And the ideal parent figure protocol is based on the Mahamudra uh, Tibetan practices of Bon, the Bon tradition. Um, and the reason I'm using that instead of a, a Theravada, which I'll try to compare it to uh, in a minute, is because you are visualizing ideal uh, uh, caregiver child relationships uh, and you visualize them and they're remembered stored in the perceptual database and you tend to work around uh, in the beginning particularly difficult experiences of uh, the the misattunements or failures of the parent-child relationship to provide a, 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 a really a, a foundation of security uh, in, in, in you. Because when that process of forming uh, the experience of conceptual reality happens, you have alternative entries in the database to form uh, the, the meaning of conceptual reality in the moment. So, you have the capacity to sense the object can be sensed when there's contact consciousness of the sensing experience arises. None of this is known by the self experience yet because it's happened before that experience has happened. It's evaluated for urgency and then it's compared to the perceptual database and the mind can grab an entry from the perceptual database that's, it, that's visualized as well as something that actually happens. And then you attach the meaning of that to the ultimate reality. And then it unfolds into conceptual reality, which is then conscious. But the way that you formed uh, conceptual reality, the selection of how to define the patterns of experience is all unconscious. Is that making sense? Yeah. So as it unfolds into uh, conceptual reality, you, you have the opportunity to see it from the self perspective and understand it. But the way that you decided in that process to make conceptual reality is still unconscious. You'd have to reverse engineer uh, to understand it, which is a part of the metacognition or mentalizing process. In meditation, we're creating these entries into the perceptual database so that we have a, a, a whole different range of choices in terms of how we create a conceptual reality. And 
so what you notice is that when conceptual reality unfolds, the self-experience of, of watching conceptual reality unfold is unchanged, but the, the creation of conceptual reality is different. So you notice from the self-perspective that you're just making reality differently. You're just choosing different ways of formulating an understanding of the moment uh, of self and world, but the, the experience of the self watching that happen isn't different. That's uh, why um, I think it's such an, uh, uh, in the beginning, it's, it's, it's a sort of a baffling experience of the self that think you're just choosing better how did that happen right i didn't make a decision to choose better i just it just was better um, <clears throat> in the beginning of course it's kind of I, the rickety is the word that's been coming up for me lately to describe that you have these these sort of sparse uh visualizations that you're using and so you form a, a, a reality which is is really based in a in a in imagination um, but then of course you formed a reality and then you take uh, make an intention and take an action and then you remember what actually happened so the the visualized experiences are then reinforced by the meaning you've made and the actions that you've taken and so memories of actual things happening are associated in the database. And so these uh, very plain, uh, sort of thin uh, entries uh, are, are then um, built upon by actual experiences. And so over the course of time, uh, the database gets much, much richer in the vein of better choices than when you started. Does that make sense? So, so. And it's really doing these, I like to say, dopey meditations that <laughs> you're sitting on the cushion meditating and it, it doesn't seem like much is happening because the self-experience isn't actually the place where it's happening. It's happening underneath that in, uh, unconsciously. And then once it's built up enough, you, you just are, you're just different without the self having an explanation. So Shinzen used to say, the self is not going to understand this. It's just going to have to get used to it. <laughs> Christian? That was a good enough answer, Joan, yeah? Uh I was just thinking, it seems like there's kind of two independent axes here. Like one is kind of like solidity or, or identification of like concepts or, or conditions. That, that seems like the Vipassana one that Vipassana can kind of break that down, your identification with whatever your condition is. But it it's not maybe and maybe this is maybe I'm just off base, but it seems like it doesn't really add and there's like another axis of like positive or negative where like that's where you can actually add references in and that's kind of where like the ipf or even maybe meta would would work in terms of adding in new possibilities or new um new new entries but vipassana doesn't really 
do that part? Um, I know I threw a lot of uh, a theory I just made up three seconds ago <laughs> at you, but. The, uh, so I would answer that by saying, you really would do want to understand uh, how to organize your practice so that you're able to effectively uh, address the conditioning that you have. Um, you want to get to a place where you can be completely spontaneous and also monitoring. You want to train the, the mind so that it will, in a completely automatic and spontaneous way, form a skillful representation of conceptual reality that you don't have to do much about. That you can just operate from this place of seeing clearly the nature of things and uh, forming over and over again skillful responses. The more training you do, the less uh, correction you have to do because you more and more are simply seeing things clearly and responding in a skillful way. It's, uh, you do have to continuously monitor though, because if you haven't worked through all of the conditioning and there are still areas where you're sort of compacted and, and the, the training or the skill set that you have uh, results in unskillful uh, action, you have to be able to train yourself out of that. So in the beginning, of course, if, if there's a lot of, uh, un, a lot of conditioning that, that doesn't uh, allow that, to see things clearly and to respond skillfully, then there's a lot to do. You have to pull everything apart and see the the, the nature of it. Um, and the different um, the different traditions have different ways of of going about doing that. The the Theravada system is really about pulling everything apart uh, and then watching things come back together so that you can see how things are made. Um, uh, the Zen tradition is, you know, the, the two main paths. One is the, I would describe it as the path of confusion, and one is the path. <laughs> uh, so the koan practice is the path of confusion, and the, the just do nothing path uh, of Soto is, is to just really be fully present in the moment and watch how everything arises and becomes uh, meaningful. And then in the Tibetan practices, depending on what you do, it's really this uh, shifting of identification from the self-experience to awareness uh, and watching in that, that's, that spaciousness of awareness, uh, everything arise and pass. Um, I did not, one of the striking things for me in my own practice is that um, the sense of sacredness uh, that I experience in, in every moment comes from the Tibetan practices and, you know, never had any hint of that in, in my Theravada practice. It's not to say that no one does, but I had no sense of that at all. And, and I use a Metavipassana practice, so it really is a kind of uh, more nuts and bolts is how I think about it. And then that, that spaciousness and that expanse uh, 
um, where everything dissolves into just this uh, profound sense of sacredness is um, quite marvelous and uh, had been un unknown before I did those practices. So, but each of you, you know, each of us have our conditioning, uh, and each of us will find the path. Uh, uh, one of the, the extraordinary things about the West, of course, is that there's so much here, uh, so much of a mixture here that you can find your way. I recommend that you you find teachers who will help you along the way because it's 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 important to. Uh, organize your practice in such a way that it's fruitful because if it isn't fruitful you won't do enough of it uh, and it won't have the effect that it might and then of course we bring uh, our conditioning to our capacity to form relationships with people that might help us with the practice and so that can also be a fruitful uh, exploration that you can see uh, how you have a tendency to relate to people uh, in attempting to relate to a teacher who you're hoping will help you. So in some sense, uh, you're trying to present yourself authentically, I hope, and then the teacher is responding. And in that exchange, uh, you reinforce your capacity for authenticity and also uh, uh, as a result of that uh, have a sense of being seen and then hopefully the teacher that you choose has the capacity then to delight in, in who you are so that that aspect of, a, of experience is reinforced. All making sense so far? Why don't we do some meditation then? Um, I'm always wanting to do metta meditation. Metta for self. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about the practice that we just did? Um, so let's see. Not this Saturday, but the following Saturday in Central European time, we're doing a level one for three Saturdays in a row. So if you're a night owl and uh, want to sit from 1 a.m. until 9 a.m., um, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, or if you know somebody who's in uh, Europe that uh, you might want to recommend the program to, uh, this is our first uh, uh, class in Central European time. Um, we're going to do a level one in January, I think, uh, in uh, Pacific time, and then in April, a second level one uh, in Central European time. We'll do a level two starting over the winter, uh, and then I have a, re a retreat scheduled in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands in June. Um, we have a, 
we want to do a 15-day a uh, meta jhana retreat uh, here in the U.S. at some point. Um, we're looking for a new meditation center because the one that we've been using now is closed. Um, but if you happen to know of uh, smallish meditation centers that are open, uh, if you could shoot me an email, that would be appreciated because we're we're trying to find a new new place to have our retreats. Uh, I think that's about everything that's coming up. Um, thank you for coming. I appreciate your practice. Uh, I offer the teaching on a dana basis. Dana is the Pali word for generosity. Uh, so I I offer the teachings freely, but then I hope that. If you're able to, you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website uh, of how to do that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. And I hope to see you soon somewhere along the path. I'll, uh, good to meet you, Peter. George, what was the name of the poem you had mentioned? It's a J Jason Schinder poem. Um, so it's three poems I usually think of. Um, the one that I was talking about is called Coda. Um, so, and now I know what most deeply connects us after that summer so many years ago, and it isn't poetry, although it is poetry, and it isn't illness, although we have that in common, and it isn't even gratitude for every moment, even the terrifying ones, even the physical pain, though we are grateful, and it is not even death, though we're halfway through it, or even the way you describe the magnificence of being alive, catching a glimpse in the store window of your blowing hair and chapped lifts. Oh, it is beautiful, it is. It is that you are my friend out here on the far reaches of what humans can find out about each other. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's very beautiful. So. Good. Good, cool. Thank you, George. See you later. Yeah, have a good one. Bye. Sandy? Thank you, George. I just wanted to hear about the poem as well. Thank <laughs> good you. Fun. Good night. All right. Good night. <laughs> Bye.